Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 to 31. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening... And there was morning, the sixth day. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this, your inspired word. And we pray that you would give us now your Holy Spirit to understand the very word of God. Jesus, thank you that you are living and reigning. Even now, that through your crucifixion and resurrection, we go to the Father through the welcome of grace. And as we've already sung, grace alone. Again, as we've sung, Lord, we need you, so fill these spaces now. Would we grow closer to you and to one another as we enact once again this ancient practice of the reading and preaching of your scriptures. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. It's been said by more people than just me, but I've said it a couple of times this fall, and I'll say it again. Everything is politicized nowadays. Used to be, do you know what used to be politicized? Politics. But now, everything else is as well. What you eat, how you come to your own diet, is politicized. What you drive, your method of transportation, if you own a car or not, and what kind of car, that's politicized. The medical choices you make or don't make, that's politicized. The media choices that you choose to consume, that's politicized. The clothes that you wear, where they come from, that's politicized. Where you shop and don't shop, that's politicized. Where you work, what you do, that's politicized. What you do for recreation, how you spend your downtime or your free time. Likewise, that's politicized. And here's another one. Care for the environment. 100% completely politicized. A story for you. In the mid-2000s, my wife Emily and I moved to the western part of Texas, Lubbock, Texas. A couple of you may have been there. For the most part, you probably haven't been, but that's the big cowboy part of Texas, which is a cowboy state to begin with. So there we were, and when we moved down there, we were surprised to find out that there wasn't recycling. 
And we didn't come to this realization all at once. For me and Emily, as we'd lived in a couple different places, and then also when we moved down there, you just kind of get in the habit of figuring out recycling as you go along, right? So you, you find a couple of recycling bins, you keep your eyes peeled to see, okay, what morning is it when I have to make sure that our stuff is out there then? And if you're like me, those are the days when you enjoy running because you get to run past everybody's recycling and get a peek in to see you know, what's going on in neighbors' lives via their recycling. It's a thrill for me every Thursday morning here in Collingswood. But we just weren't seeing that happening, and we thought maybe we've missed it. So we started asking around, and I asked a neighbor, hey, where's, where's recycling? What day is it? And this is what my neighbor said back to me. We don't do recycling here in Lubbock because it's a liberal agenda. And I said, and this was a red state Part, part of the country? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like Tuesday? Wednesday? And he was like, no, it, it's a liberal agenda. We're, we're not recycling. And so I, I, I crowdsourced that with a couple other people locally. And they're like, no, we definitely do not do recycling here. Lubbock, Texas was and is a city with plenty of money. If the municipality would have chosen to recycle, they very easily could have recycled, but chose not to for political reasons. Meanwhile, I grew up with a friend in New Orleans who became an environmental engineer. She was a friend of mine, and she may have finished one place ahead of me in the final rankings for our high school, but who even cares or remembers stuff like that? But Emily and I were visiting New Orleans in our 20s, and we were talking to her about her job. She was an environmental engineer, worked for LSU, Louisiana State University and did consulting with oil companies that were doing a lot of different things in the Louisiana Gulf Coast. And I asked her, hey, what do you think about global warming? What's going on with all of that and climate change? And she said, I can't talk about it. And I was like, yeah, what do you mean? Tell, tell me more. It's like, no, legally, for me as an environmental engineer working at Louisiana State University, it is in my contract that whether on the record or off the record, because it's such a hot-button issue, I am not allowed to talk about global warming. And I was like, hey, we, we finished at basically the same rank in high school. You know, don't we have some, like, capital? It's like she was in an MCU movie where she was sworn to secrecy. She's like, no, they will take my husband and kids if I say anything about global warming. So politicized. Meanwhile, and... In Louisiana, we had known this for decades, but the wetlands of Louisiana are continually eroding. The polar ice caps are melting. Wildfires are raging in California and the Pacific Northwest. Species of plants and animals are dying. Even within this room, or watching online, when you think about environmental stuff, don't you begin to feel? Doesn't it register physically with you? There may be some angst, there may be some anxiety, and it feels political. You're not just thinking about this environmental issue here or this environmental issue there. You're thinking about the swirl and the angst of politics run through all of these different things. And chances are, too, when you think about politics and it registers politically, you also have some enemies in mind. If you're a person of the right, maybe you think, oh, those 
anti-capitalist people on the left that are just running our economy into the ground, or if you're on the left, and these are stereotypes I realize, it's those people on the right that only care about the bottom line and the almighty dollar, and we're leaving nothing except ruin for our descendants. We think in terms of enemies. For me, though, humble little old me, I just kind of get sad and perplexed as these environmental issues are so incredibly politicized. Because if there is some cause for alarm, and if there is some scriptural warrant for caring for the environment, why so much anger? And we'll actually talk about why. Why so much angst? Why are we fighting so much? And what do you know? This being the late modern West where everything is not only politicized but polarized too, you see the church in America pulling to separate poles. Again, huge generalizations, but bear with me. It's the progressive churches that are all about the environment. But when I mingle in some of those circles, my reservation there is we're all about the environment, but has anybody seen Jesus? I'm looking for him. Where's, where, where's the gospel? Isn't that the most important thing? And you have like the silly stereotypes. Maybe you saw the headline a couple years ago when Union Seminary, which is probably the most or one of the most far out progressive Christian seminaries in the U.S. in New York City, where in their student union they brought a lot of plants in and seminary students confessed to plants, not to God. In my opinion, that's kind of silly. But then you turn around to the conservative churches that are not about the environment, and sometimes you feel or just get the sense that there's outright scorn. Or in the conservative churches, you may have individuals that care deeply about the environment, but there's this unspoken thing where I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about it, or is this something that our church, quote-unquote, believes in or not? Maybe I should just keep it to myself. So whether it's through omission or commission, these churches just don't go there. So what do we do? Is there a different way? Is there a third way where we're pulled not by the politics in all of these contentious directions, but instead, is there a way of Jesus that transcends some of these divides? And I believe that there is. One of the things as it relates to environmental issues, and we go back to the scriptures, in my opinion, everything gets put back into its proper place. And so we can both press when it comes to environmental issues, but then also rest at the same time. So let's talk in three parts from here, from Genesis chapter 1, thinking about the environment. The first part is going to be care for the environment and some biblical roots there. Then we're going to talk about environmentalism, and then we're going to talk about some steps forward. So care for the environment from a scriptural perspective. And I mentioned before that Eric Mitchell had preached on this passage a couple of weeks ago. I received from the same dude, Eric Mitchell, a paper about scriptural reasons for care for the environment that he wrote in seminary. So I have his permission that I'm drawing from that paper here in the next section, which also means if you have any problems, eric at liberty.org is the destination for such things. He would love to hear from you. So scriptural cause or warrant for caring for the environment. When Eric preached on this passage, Genesis 1, and following, a couple of weeks ago, he unfolded what's been called in the church the cultural mandate. And Eric, as he should have, and as we divided up different topics through this sermon se series, 
focused on human beings. God has called our first parents, and by proxy through them, all of us, to be people that are for human flourishing in the world. God has called us to build stuff, to do stuff, to cultivate stuff, to develop stuff. That's a warrant given to us from God, Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But if the focus, as I believe it should be, is on the cultural mandate vis-a-vis -vis people, there's a larger environmental dimension to that as well. So we see the animals coming in to verse 28 and then plants coming in on verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And God created all this vast array and says, this is really great. This is very good. Verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And the Hebrew here, that's tov tov. Tov is good. Mazel tov. That tov is good. That mazel is good fortune or good luck, which is said today. Tav is good. Little Hebrew tidbit here for you. There's no equivalent of very in the Hebrew language. So instead of saying very good, you just say the adjective twice. So, and God saw all of this stuff, this world that he had made. Tav, tav. Good, good. Very good. Really, really good. And Eric did a really great job a couple of weeks ago unpacking words like having dominion and subduing. Those words can sound dire, but as we understand these words in context and as they move forward through the Hebrew scriptures, human beings having dominion over the earth. We are to be cultivators. We shepherd creation. We tend to it well and gently as we try to steward all of these great things that God has made for us. We should care for all of this because, after all, we're going from a garden to a garden. The Garden of Eden all the way to the heavenly garden, new heavens and new earth, Jerusalem to come. And so we take care of all of this stuff in between. A really great late 20th century thinker was a man named Francis Schaeffer. Really, really like Francis Schaeffer. He doesn't seem, in my estimation, to be making the leap to next generation. But let's try to keep some Francis Schaeffer going here. This is what Francis Schaeffer wrote. People are to exercise our dominion over nature and resources, not as though entitled to exploit them, but as things borrowed or held in trust. We are to use them, realizing that they are not ours intrinsically. Man's dominion is under God's dominion. We need to take care of the environment. It's also woven, in, and you may not know this, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, to the Jewish Sabbath. We're going to talk about Sabbath a lot more this coming Sunday, actually. But for now, Sabbath... Do you know who rests every seventh day on the Sabbath? All the people. But also, if you go back and check, it's the animals as well. The animals are given rest. Hey, you're working really hard. This is a day of rest for you. Or every seventh year, do you know what gets rest? The land. The land is given time off so that it can replenish its own resources as we care for the environment. And one of the reasons, not the only reason, that God gave Judah into exile all of those years ago, as we look at the biblical record, it's because they didn't care for the land. From the ancient prophet Jeremiah, God says, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. 
But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage, the land, an abomination. Again corroborated at the end of Second Chronicles, which is a chronicle, a story of how Judah fell into exile. The ruler of Babylon took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had observed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And in my estimation, really good, solid, non-crazy biblical scholars have raised the question that if we are hell-bent on extracting from the earth all of its resources for this present moment, arguably, maybe we're violating the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, as it relates to future generations. One Bible scholar has put it this way. The poor use of natural and other resources represents theft from the neighbor. Indeed, from our own children and grandchildren, who may someday curse us for this. People destroy the earth and do wrong to a neighbor because they covet more than the creator has allotted to them. This greed is idolatry. So, should Christians care about the state of the environment? Yes, because God does. This is my father's world. Cross comparison, Casa Anger, the Anger Home. Now, if you've been to the Anger Home or you know me and Emily, nobody's going to say that, man, their house is so neat, it's like a museum, it's super cold, and you can't touch anything. That's not the mojo of our household. But I have this rocking chair, and it's by a little coffee table, and it's right in front of my stereo. I really care about that couple of square feet in my house, and I keep it neat, because you know what I do in that rocking chair? I rock there, and I listen to my music, and I read my book, and I have my beverage, and it's amazing. I'd be lying to you if it's not. And because I care about it, I want it to be a certain way. And daddy gets out of joint when it's not a certain way. God thinks that way about this world. Not just one corner, but all of it. We should care and keep it nice and keep it good. If you're somebody who's wrestling with spiritual realities one way or another, and you might think maybe you're on the outside of Christianity looking in, maybe you're on the inside of Christianity but thinking about going out, here's an instance maybe where you might be pleasantly surprised to say that some of the intuitions that you may have about environmental care have deeply scriptural roots. But then I'd want to have a little bit more of a conversation with a religious skeptic and say, well, what's your reason? What's your hope for caring about all of this stuff? And I would say that the Bible gives the best reasons around. Because this is not just a random rock that's from nowhere, going nowhere, going to get way too hot, way too cold. And if that's all it is, then maybe we just trash it and think about ourselves because it's all going to go up in flames anyway. But instead, if this rock, if this cosmos has intrinsic value because God made it and it means something and it's valuable and it's not just going to go kaplooey, but it will be renewed in a new heavens and new earth and we can with hope look forward to that day, then we engage right now. Not from a sense of panic or from a sense of guilt, but from a deep sense of settled hope. And I've said before in some of these sermons, as we click on a couple topics that are topical, so to speak, here and there, I've said at different times, 
I'm not a politician and I'm not a priest, but here I'm getting a little bit medley, so thank you for your patience as I get a little bit medley in people's business just a little bit. The global warming question, climate change, here, here's my quick take. It's real. Climate change is real. Global warming is real and ecological disasters, they are on the increase in our world. The question is, and this is the word that I find in the literature, is it anthropogenic climate change and global warming? Anthropo means human being or man. Genic, genesis, does it come from or is it caused by what human beings are doing? And here's how I've shifted personally. You don't have to have my mileage on this. Your mileage may vary. But as I've shifted personally over the years, I used to think, well, that anthropogenic question is a hugely important one. Let's answer that one. But here's how I've shifted a little bit over the years. I've kind of come to a point now that's a little bit like Pascal's wager. I won't go into what Pascal's wager is, but you can Google it. It's in the Mr. Googly machine if you want to go there. But sort of along the lines of a Pascal's wager, my take now is the climate crisis seems so real and acute even if there is a chance that human beings can positively affect these things from here, shouldn't we roll up our sleeves and do something? Are the risks too great in the other direction? And doesn't the Bible say that we should care about these things, that we should care about the environment? So that's the scriptures and environmental care. Now let's talk a little bit too. And this section to me is just as fun as the previous section that I was talking about environmentalism. What's going on? What's the deal with churches where you have this pull, you have this polarization, and it sure seems like nowadays it is the progressive churches that have all of the environmental stuff and not on the other side of the aisle. Where does this come from? Here's my read. We have to thank in part for this our old friend, and if you had a new members class and in covenant class here with us, you may have heard about this little controversy from the early 20th century Fundamentalist modernist controversy. People always ask me, Jim, I love it when you talk about the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Could you talk about it more? This is your lucky day. Happy Halloween. So in the late 1800s going into the 1900s, there were some what we would call progressive churches here in the mainline United States churches that, you know, all this new science was coming in, archaeology, and the question started to be raised, can we really believe the Bible anymore? Or is that just a witness to what people thought then about God, but we have our own witness and have our own view of how some of these things should work? So there were mainline churches that were the modernists that began to pull away from historic Christianity. Meanwhile, the fundamentals were written, which was actually a series of books. And fundamentalist today has a bad connotation, those religious crazy people. But the actual books, the fundamentals, as in fundamentals of the faith, they were really scholarly, really robust. And they said, no, we, we still need to believe the Bible. Here are some reasons for it. But as that controversy gained steam, you had the modernist churches that were all about the collective issues and the public morality and doing things in the here and now for the kingdom of God. And then you had the quote-unquote fundamentalist churches that were all about individual and private morality and the world to come. So you need to believe in Jesus because we don't want you to go to hell. And if you believe in Jesus, he's paid the price for your sin. Go to heaven. That's the most important thing. But you have this bifurcation, right? When all in one, and stereotypically in both directions, you have the social justice warriors on one hand and the Bible thumpers on the other hand. And it's within that pull towards the poles 
that you see environmental causes going to one side and not to the other. But in my opinion, both sides of the aisle on this issue are scrambling what's been called by Christian theologians the creator-creature distinction. Bear with me, a theological distinction. So creator-creature distinction sort of goes like this. There is a creator, God. God created all things. And in creating all things, God is distinct from creation. He's not part of creation. But in condescension, God chooses to relate to all of his creation. And as a subset of the creator-creature distinction, God has made human beings as the pinnacle, the climax of all of this stuff. And human beings are above, but still connected to animals, plants, and the rest of the world. In my opinion, it's both some of these progressive churches and the conservative churches, when it comes to environment, that rupture that distinction. It's the progressive churches that rupture and elevate. It's the conservative churches that rupture and denigrate. So progressive churches rupture and elevate. Where the creation itself is taken and put on par, maybe, with human beings. We don't want to be speciists here and say that human beings have any more value as anything else. That, that's a thing. And then also the creation is elevated so high that it looks like it's put on par with God himself and or God is part and woven into creation, another theological term, pantheism, where God is everywhere. God is in all of this stuff and not necessarily distinct or above. And so on this reading of progressive churches, by and large, with environmental care, you get things like calling Earth Mother Earth. And there, there's like theological assumptions baked into that. You'll have on Earth Days worship services where, yes, the Earth is worshipped. And all kinds of fun stuff, too. Have, have you seen the headlines? And sorry to be headline-mongering here a little bit today, where people are marrying things. It's a thing. People, and you'll invite friends and neighbors, spend tens of thousands on, of dollars for your wedding where you'll go and you'll marry a tree or you'll marry a river. That is a rupturing of the creature-creator distinction in a pretty severe way. And you might think, well, that's just kind of crazy. That's never going to go mainstream. But marriage definitions culturally change. Maybe this is another one. Or PETA has been getting on baseball a little bit because of the word bullpen, and that's like nasty towards bulls, and it's specious to, to use bulls in such a mean way as we think about how horrible the Phillies are and, and that sort of thing. To me, that's silly. And it's a rupturing of the creature-creator distinction where we're elevating creation so much. But then on the other hand, with, with conservative churches, rupturing by denigrating. God created human beings, and that's about it. Oh yeah, there, there may be something called the environment, there may be something called plants, there may be something called animals, but we're not really going to worry about that because really the only thing that's super important is God and human beings. But go back to Genesis 1. What about all the rest of this stuff? And this is where I double-clicked a little bit. To me, I think if you go and read the Bible and believe that the Bible is true, you get to a place of saying we do need to care for the environment. And so I was asking the question for the last week or two, why do we get in some of these Bible-believing churches such an anti-environmental view? Are there any reasons for that? And the answer is actually yes. So late 1960s, early 1970s, as what we would consider the modern environmental movement gained steam, 
there were genuinely some ideological anti-Christian impulses built into some of these things. In the late 60s, there was an influential article written in Science. The journal is Science, and the topic of the Journal of Science is Science. And I've seen this article cited in a lot of different places since then. There was a guy named Lynn White Jr. who blamed the Bible for environmental denigration, who, in my opinion, misinterpreted words like dominion and subdue and said that if we want to find a culprit for the horrible state of the environment in our world today, just look to the Bible and look to churches. And then also a book by a guy named Paul Ehrlich, The Population Bomb, or a U.S. government commission that was talking about what we need to do to save the environment. They were advocating things like eugenics and voluntary sterilization and government control of family size and lots of abortions so that we can get the environment under control. And there were Bible-believing Christians, and I would put myself in this category here, that were like, this is no bueno. And so there are all of these other things that are baked into an environmental program. And it's been observed by people across the ideological spectrum that there are tendencies within environmentalism for it to be its own religion. A person who's not a person of faith named Stephen Asma, he's a professor in Chicago, has written a book called Green Guilt. Interesting title. A little bit of a longer quote here, but bear with me. Now the secular world still has to make sense of its own invisible psychological drama. The thesis of the book is that as progressive people, we've moved away from traditional religion and Christianity. Those religious impulses are still there because we're, in my opinion, made in the image of God. And so environmental care becomes a new religion. In particular, it's feelings of guilt and indignation. Environmentalism as a substitute for religion, has come to the rescue. Instead of religious sins plaguing our conscience, we now have the transgressions of leaving the water running, leaving the lights on, failing to recycle, using plastic grocery bags instead of paper. In addition, the righteous pleasures of being more orthodox than your neighbor, in this case being more green, can still be had. The new heresies include failure to compost or refusal to go organic. Vitriol that used to be reserved for Satan can now be discharged against evil corporate chief executives and drivers of gas-guzzling vehicles. Apocalyptic fear-mongering previously took the shape of repent or burn in hell, but now it is recycle or burn in the ozone layer. In fact, it is, it is interesting the way environmentalism takes on the apocalyptic aspects of the traditional religious narrative. And he concludes, let us save the planet by all means. But let's also admit to ourselves that we have a natural propensity toward guilt and indignation, and let that fact temper our fervor to more reasonable levels. So sometimes it sounds to me that somebody like Stephen Asma is right. And if that's our core defining religion, care for the environment, from a theological perspective, I would add to that, it is a religion devoid of grace and full of doom. Devoid of grace. There's no Jesus crucified and resurrected for forgiveness and hope and new life. It's only doom and gloom. And we should be worried. We should freak out. And because it's only horizontal, there's no transcendent. All we have is enemies as we look around. See, the Bible says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So we don't demonize other people that have different opinions than us. Our enemies are death and the devil. Those are the bad guys. That's what we are against. But if we don't have any transcendent, and it's all here, 
those enemies are the folks that have different opinions than you do. Can we find a deeper place of freedom? Meanwhile, just so it doesn't sound like I'm just beating up on progressives, there are olives in October. There are olives in October. I said last week that Emily and I had the opportunity to travel to Rome a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things that we did, we took a Sunday, and I won't say who, but one member of our marriage has great internet skills, much better than the other one, and that person found a private tour where we go out into the Roman countryside, we're picked up by Pierre, who drives us to all of these little Roman countryside towns, so you get great views of all things, and it ends with a lunch in a Roman farmhouse where everything you consume, from the olive oil, from soup, to nuts, to bread, to pasta, to chicken, to meat, to cheese, to red wine, and white wine, and so on, it all comes from that farm. It's a truly horrible experience. Just kidding. He said there are olives in October. Pierre was a younger person, uh, but he said, I, I've talked to farmers who have been farming this land for generations, and we have never had olives in October before, always in November. But the olives have come this year at the beginning of October. Are we so sure that we should do nothing and not get a little bit worried that there are olives in October? And for churches that do believe the Bible, this is an easy win in terms of building some bridges with our non-Christian friends and neighbors. Hey, we care about this world too because God made it. How can we partner and do more? So let's talk about steps forward. One more Francis Schaeffer quote. The Christian who believes the Bible should be the person with God's help and in the power of the Holy Spirit is treating nature now in the direction of the way nature will be in the resurrection. It will not now be perfect, but there should be something substantial or we have missed our calling. Practical advice. Be honest about your biases. Everybody in this room, everybody watching probably has biases when it relates to environmental stuff. Be honest with yourself about what those biases are, and maybe you need to be pulled away from them a little bit. If you're somebody like, I, I hate all the politicization of the, of the environment. I, I don't trust the mainstream science. It's agenda-driven. I'm not going to recycle. Maybe you can be pulled in the other direction a little bit. Or maybe you're consumed by environmental stuff. Maybe you need to be pulled to a place of resting a little bit. Probably some of us need to press a little bit more. Others of us maybe need to rest a little bit more at the same time. And insofar as it's mine to grant, you have permission to have conversation and nuanced participation about these things. You can talk about environmental stuff. Trade tips with one another. How can I do better about this? Ask for prayer, whether it's like, I don't know where to start. Pray for me, I should probably be doing more. Maybe it's prayer where like, it keeps me up at night and I can't rest. Help me to find some release and relief from being so torn up about environmental things so much of the time. Go together, maybe to this cause or this rally. But I would encourage you to nuance participation as opposed to unnuanced. There are movements within environmental stuff that do have some of this anti-Christian ideology still baked in, which sounds intimidating and crazy, but really, we've got this. Treat it like yoga, okay? Is that too hard? 
Now, I don't personally do yoga because I am at peak mass and peak flexibility all the time. That's one of my hallmarks, as, as you know. But yoga, you know, works for some people who, who need to get to peak flexibility like, like I do. It's really good. It makes you more flexible. It's really good for the body. But yes, I would also allow that the deeper you go into the back end of yoga, there is this like total new agey system. So that's there. So just use the yoga for the good stuff and don't get carried away by all the new agey stuff. That's nuanced participation that I know many of you in this room and online are already doing. Carry the same thing forward to how we engage with environmental stuff. And I would encourage you, me, on all sides of the aisle to look to the Christian story and find a place of less anxiety and angst. One more Bible passage for you. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, to the church in Rome, gives a vision of the new heavens and new earth to come. Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. As we're centered upon the security of Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and resurrected, who paid the penalty for our sin, conquered our enemies of sin and death and the devil, shares new life with us now as we receive it by faith, all the way to a new heavens and new earth to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.